This is getting better and better. Well, Al, we uh, we typically like to ask uh, our guests uh, what's inspiring them today. So, uh, what's inspiring Al Rounds uh, today? Yeah. Well, I'm actually just starting a painting that uh, is just a little bit east of here, and uh, so I was working on uh, along on the painting, and then I suddenly found that. Uh, on the mountain where I was working on it up here, I couldn't, uh, wasn't working for me. So I hopped in my uh, truck and drove up the canyon and just took some more pictures and and uh, enjoyed the, the kind of the storm that was coming in so that I could uh, get a little more information on my painting and come back here and uh, get working on it. So my day, Every day is different. I never quite know what's going to be happening. I've not, like today, I've just been painting all day. And then suddenly I have to take off and go clear up to uh, the Yeah, that's great. What a, yeah, that would be uh, pretty fascinating. If you get stuck, you just say, hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to go get the answers from the test out in nature. Yes. So you drive up the canyon and get some more reference shots. So where is where where did you go? What canyon did you go up to get the reference shots today? Well, it's Little Cottonwood Canyon. Okay. There's a little, uh, there's a little a small canyon that comes off of that uh, called uh, the Dimple Dale. Uh, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Comes off there, and this is a view looking from in the bottom of that wash up towards Twin Peaks. Yeah, so you're you're right over by my house. Then uh, we live just below Little Cottonwood Canyon. Yeah, beautiful place. Well, that would be inspiring. Uh, and with that, folks, we want to welcome you to another episode of the Evolve Podcast. A man who paints on his T-shirts in his spare time. Our resident intellectual himself in Oberlin, Ohio, is W. Miles Riley. Welcome, Miles. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here, Al. It's great to have you. We are excited today. today. Yep. And in the mountains of Utah, Steve Cutler. Today's guest is a man who will inspire you to disrupt and evolve your soul, the one and only Al Rounds. So Al Rounds transparent watercolors register a beautiful familiarity with the world we all love. They carry us to a distance of miles and years, which speak of history revisited uh, and of lives well lived. Scouring back roads and country lanes, searching for the past, Al Rollins continues to capture a particular reverence for the pride of a place. Travel provides an ongoing source of inspiration for Al. Some of his favorite findings are in upstate New York with its rural integrity and four-season beauty. In England, with its meandering damp cobblestone streets, and in his native Utah, where pioneer history still crowds the fence lines and farmsteads of every town. The size, historical significance, and accuracy of the architectural landscapes he creates are hallmarks of his work. 
Al can't think of a time when he didn't want to be an artist. While his classmates were working on the serious business of school, Al would be gazing out the window, daydreaming about, about drawing. It's apparent that he has always been drawn to architectural landscape. His first grade teacher sent a note home to his mother asking if Al knew how to draw anything other than his house. <laughs> I love that part. In 1977, he earned a bachelor's degree from the University of Utah, go Utes. His painting technique was influenced uh, there by English portrait master Alvin Giddens and newspaper art critic and watercolorist George Dibble. Utah-born Al Rounds was brought up in a small town community of Walnut Creek, California, and this internationally acclaimed artist now finds retreat in his home nestled in the Rocky Mountains of Utah. Al Rounds, welcome to the Evolve podcast. Well, thank you very much. Well, we are really excited to talk to you today about uh, your creative process, and uh, it's an honor to have you on the show. I, I've got to tell you, I mean, I can't remember how old I was when I came to your studio one day to pick up a painting with my mother and was just enamored by your work and always have been. So um, by far one of my all-time favorite artists um, and just an honor to have you here. But I want to start to talk about uh, by talking about your creative process. So can you walk our listeners through what that looks like? How do you create? Well, every painting is slightly different, but uh, most of my paintings, I have to explain it this way, is start with feelings and mm, uh, okay. about something. And then I go out and try to match up my feelings with something. Now that if I'm doing something that's historical, uh, maybe I've been studying something or uh, I'm just finishing up a painting that's given me a, another idea for another painting. And so um, I get a sort of feeling about how I would like to approach it. And then I go out and find all the pieces of the puzzle. Because uh, a painting is a lot like a puzzle. There are lots and lots of pieces that have to come together before you can just sit down and start drawing things. Yeah, that's fascinating. So when you say you start with a feeling, are you talking about that you're maybe sitting around your, um, and, and you feel happy, you feel a certain mood, or is it that there's some sort of inspirational feeling with something that you read? Like, where, where does, what's the genesis of that feeling? Well, uh, the feeling is really broad. And sometimes it comes through dreams. Sometimes I'm reading a diary uh, of, of, you know, a particular subject. And, or sometimes I'm just interviewing an elderly person and which I love to do, uh, to talk about their childhood and things like that. Um, and then as I get this feeling of it's, I don't even know how to explain it. You know, when I was uh, when I was in Italy and I was researching for a painting of the Rome Temple, I knew that I was going to do a painting of the Rome Temple, but I didn't know what I was going to do, how I was going to approach it. And we were in the uh, the car of our guide, 
who spoke English, but uh, good English, but uh, the conversation was still challenging, you know. And I yeah. told him, uh, I stopped him and I said, I've got this really strong feeling. I've got to get to the top of a hillside and so I can see the sun go down. I have a feeling that it's going to be really nice. And, you know, he goes, oh, no problem, no problem. And so he's driving around through high-rise apartment buildings and, I mean, there's no sunset, right? I know, and I'm getting more and more uptight. And we had stopped at a stop sign and I leaned over to Cynthia, my wife Cynthia, and I said, I've got to get out of this car. And uh, you hold on to him for about 15 minutes, but then please come find me because I won't know where I am. And <laughs> I, uh, I got out of the car and I just started running and just like a crazy man through, it, you know, Rome and of which I know, knew nothing about. And I, after about a, uh, three quarters of a mile, I came up to the hillside and the sun was just going down and it was over uh, uh, a broad orchard of olive trees. And then pretty soon here came uh, everybody in the car, just, as, just right as the sunset finished. And so I got what I wanted. But, you know, that's, that's really not something you can explain to anybody or that you can plan on. Or, yeah. It just happened. I have a quick question because um, it was it's really intriguing that you said you get a feeling. Um, I love that idea. H how do you sustain it? Does once you lock into a feeling, can that feeling change based on something changing in the painting, or do you have a way of sustaining this particular feeling until a painting is actually finished? Mm, good question. Um, so let's see, how does that go? You know, I'm like a dog on a scent when I get this food. <laughs> and make it. A great and, description. And, uh, and what's frustrating to me is I sometimes don't even know quite what it is. Maybe a good mm. example did a painting of um, up on the mountainside and looking down over the valley. And uh, I got this idea that I wanted to go hike up on the mountainside and look down into the valley on top of where the Draper Temple, the Draper LDS Temple is. And so I told Cynthia that I was just gonna go up there and hike around and uh, see if I, what I could find. And just as I was leaving out the door, she said to me, now, why don't you try to find a spot where you can see all four temples? And in my head, I said, I am not going to do that. You know, I mean, it was like I knew what I wanted to do. And so I climbed up, uh, went up the corner canyon. And I started on one end of the, the valley. And there, there was snow. There was about four to six feet of snow where I was walking through and I was in blue jeans. I wasn't planning very well. And I hiked around, came around to this spot 
And then I saw this view with all four temples in it, and where I could see all four temples. And I stopped there and I went, dang, I've got to do this now. And I had to call Cynthia and apologize to her because <laughs> <laughs> the wind was blown and I was shivering. I was so cold. And I said, I found all four temples and that's got to be my pain. So yeah, that's so great. sometimes it changes, but okay. uh, most of the time it's a root just, it might not be directly. It might be days or weeks later and I drive past the ditch somewhere and that ditch fit, fits a puzzle piece so that I can do the uh, a painting. The painting sort of comes into my head just from a ditch. So I have to be out. I, I get the feeling and I have to be active about it, reading, mm. doing before anything happens. It doesn't happen. It doesn't come to fruition if I just sit in my studio. So you're out searching constantly. And I like how you're talking about a ditch because one of my favorite paintings and the one that I've told my mom and dad that I'm stealing when they pass away is the uh, the painting of Mount Olympus. And there's a, I believe there, if I'm recalling that painting correctly, there's a ditch on the side there. And it just, it reminds me of so many of those little ditches in that area. And then all of a sudden you have this grand painting or this grand, you know, Mount Olympus. Um, so I, it, what a what a cool way to think about it is that there's a feeling and then almost like a bloodhound, you're out searching for it. You, you actually yeah. told your parents that when they die, you're going to take this painting? No, they, already, <laughs> they told me that uh, I could have it. Okay, because that really just sounds kind of creepy that you're just <laughs> waiting for this painting. <laughs> I tell you, just when, the, when they're not looking, write your name on the backside of it. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now they know how much I love that one. In fact, I think that was uh, a painting that uh, my, I know my mom wanted that for my dad or wanted to pick one out for my dad. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when I saw that, I said, well, you've got to get this one because that's, that's the view uh, that he had when he was growing up. So, yeah. um, and then once they got it, I thought, yeah, that, that, that painting needs to be mine someday. Beautiful, beautiful painting. So Al, when you get this feeling and you start to go out and you search for it, how often does that initial vision of what your painting is going to be, how often does that come to fruition? So I know you're talking about a puzzle piece and there's many things that could change over time, but walk through what that looks like. You, you found the view or you found the scene. What's next? Well, it doesn't always, uh, go from one thing to the next. Sometimes there are long time periods, maybe a year or even two years, uh, before things come into play properly. Or maybe I get this strong feeling about a painting and I'm working on something and I, I really can't stop. I, ha I have to work on one thing at a, at a time because I'm a watercolorist and you just can't leave a painting to the organization mm. of too complicated to, to leave it. So uh, maybe the painting I'm working on is a good example of that. And uh, I just kept mentioning to everybody that I had a feeling that I wanted to do a painting up there, you know? So, and I live kind of down uh, below the mouth of Little Coughlin Canyon. So 
And Cynthia said to me, where do you think it is? And I said, I really don't know. It's up there somewhere. And so uh, a couple of months ago, we had a really big rainstorm. It was oh, on yeah. Sunday. Yeah. And I just, I just thought, well, this is the right time. And it was pouring rain. But I took off and I, I drove up there and then I hiked down into the gully and I just started walking up the gully to see if I could find my painting. And then the rain stopped and the clouds came off the mountains and Twin Peaks came up out of there and there's my painting. So I was able to you know, match my feeling up you know, when I saw when the clouds broke off and the sun came across there, it was it was about uh, eight o'clock, so the sun hadn't quite gone down, and, and and I know instantly what my painting is. Yeah, that's amazing. Now, how often one one artist that I uh, took some classes from years and years ago. He said, when you're painting and you're creating a painting, it's one of the greatest feelings because you don't have to be, you know, a, a photographer is locked in to whatever their subject matter is on the other side of the lens. But he said, as a painter, if you don't like a tree where it's at, you're like God, you can move it somewhere else. So how often are you taking uh -huh. and moving things around in your composition to create the feeling that you're looking for? In other oh. words, how are you acting like God? <laughs> <laughs> Never. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, a, that, that's a humble answer. That's great. That's a humble answer. In, in this process, is all on paper, drawings, and, you know, going out, taking photographs and comparing photographs, going on location, doing drawings, moving things around. With watercolor, um, oh, I wish you could see my palette and everything from there, but uh, there's no white on your palette. Right. You use the white of the paper as your white paint. So with watercolor, you rely on the paper. It's always you're mixing on your palette and plus the white paper. So an oil painter, uh, takes the tube of particular color and then he adds white or black to it and, and builds on top of that. And so you can make changes. You can move things around. You can paint over the top of it. You can scrape it off. But with watercolor, you, you can ruin a painting by covering up some light area that you need for uh, focus on the painting. And you've got to start over. and. You know, and I've worked on paintings for weeks before and had to start over because they just weren't working. And I hadn't, you know, that tree that was in it was in a bad place. And no matter what I did, it just, I could not change that. So the only way you can change it is by starting over and moving that tree in the first place. So watercolor is tricky that way um and so people say why do you why do you paint with watercolor it's so hateful and when i was in college i hated watercolor because there was no control over it. Mm. you know water 
is alive. It moves on its own. An oil painter puts the paint down and you push it. So it moves with the brush. So everything is by your command, right? Where you put it and what you do with it. With watercolor, it, it has its own life. When you touch that surface, it can go take off and move on its own. So there's a lot of planning and practicing on other pieces of paper. Uh, my sketchbook is right next to me with notes on it. And, and the, that's full on this painting. I've got a sketch over here. I don't know if you can see that uh, of the painting that's behind me to kind of remind me what I really want to do. So, I mean, it's a real, uh, creative plan and then you have to let it go a bit so that it doesn't control you otherwise it looks you know you have to let the watercolor be watercolor and, yeah and that's and, one of the things that people talk about is that it's a very unforgiving medium because like you said it's it it will move your paint where it wants to go and so you do have a certain amount of control as you master it but it it's fairly unforgiving. Yeah. Well, I've been painting for 43 years and I have still not mastered watercolor. It is <laughs> every time I I'm going to have to disagree with you on that one. I don't want to get into a fight here, but uh, I, I I would consider you a master uh, of watercolor. It's a, it's a tough medium. You know, when I was in uh, at the U I was an oil painter and worked with the figure. And uh, watercolor was a class you had to take and everybody hated watercolor because no control uh, is, is just, I mean, you can paint, you know how to paint and you know how to draw and then there's watercolor and it's like you're starting over. It's yeah. a totally different, it's very technique oriented. So it was, uh, you know, it was stay away from watercolor. And then when I graduated, I was out trying to make a living and I would get up every day and I had a great job. I actually had had an offer for a real job at an advertising agency and it was $500 a month. And, um, and so that was my rule. I had to make $500 a month or go get a job. So I would be out painting <laughs> and I would do two or three paintings a day because I was selling a, you know, a small painting this size frame, a frame that I would make. And I was selling them for 50 and $75. So you do the math, you know, you, you've got to sell a lot of paintings uh, to make a living. And I would paint all week and then set up my paintings someplace, Snowbird when the symphony played up there, or sometimes uh, down at Trolley Square on Friday night. And just wherever I could get a crowd of people and someone would let me set up my paintings. Well, after about six or seven months, I was starting to just wear out. I was painting so many hours that I just could not do it. And um, I thought, well, I should maybe I can try a watercolor because in, I can do a watercolor in a couple of hours. So I, you know, head out in my old Subaru and sit on the hood of my 
Subaru and, and do a watercolor in a couple of hours. And, and at first it was just a real hateful experience, but after a few months of, you know, working really, really hard and having hundreds of paintings behind me and started to really like it. And then mm. to think, well, slow down and do some of your oil techniques and do, do something really big. And, um, Pretty soon, you know, a year had gone by and I hadn't touched an oil painting. So now it's 43 years and nothing but watercolor. So 43 years of just doing watercolor. What an interesting evolution. Um, and I didn't know that about your paintings that you had started with oil, because when I first saw your paintings, I that was one of the first things I thought of is that it has very, or your paintings have an, an oil feel to them um and some of the techniques with uh, they, they just they read to me as oil paintings uh, a lot of detail so uh, the i guess the the genesis of this was because you didn't think that you could keep up with the pace of being an oil painter and well, so this I, allowed you to do more right i really couldn't i would yeah. i was right now and uh, you know that the burnout was starting you know, I mean, you do a hundred paintings as an artist, you, you know, your ideas start, I don't know, it's just, that's a lot of paintings, right? And Right, right. So the watercolors really saved me because it, it really was starting over creativity. Uh, I had to rethink the way you paint because now I had to save the white instead of the whites being the last thing on the canvas. Yeah. And then yeah. the thing was, is I had 10 paintings going on at one time because of the drying problems, where now I was just working on one painting. And so you keep your thoughts on that painting, you know, and you can move all the way through it from start to finish without, you know, get, putting it over here and then taking this one over here. And it, that, it fit my personality, I guess, is the best way. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. Is, um, you know, if you're just working on one painting, how do you feel about being that focused for that long? Because it sounds like that when you're painting, sometimes a, a creating a painting may take a few weeks. Yeah, and sometimes months. Those oh, paintings wow. of, the, of Rome were... Uh, a year and a half. I did two paintings and it took me three years. Wow. And yeah, and there's a, holy cow, there's a tension that develops, you know, you get after you've been on a painting for two or three months and you can still mess it up and have to start over. That's, you, you start getting pretty uptight about the painting. It's hard to. I could imagine overcome that but it's kind of a weird thing it's almost like every morning when I come and sit down in front of my canvas I have to clean things up around and, and just kind of doodle in a way around in my studio and have the music on so that the music is helping me and then I look at it and I just say to myself I don't know what I'm doing. How do I do this? 
<laughs> you literally have to pick up a brush or a pencil and start touching and doing. And the moment you do that, that artistic, uh, that zone, it's like you disappear. And, uh, you know, there could be water coming in the windows and you'd be standing up keeping your feet out of the water so you can be finishing what you're doing. You know, I mean, it's like the oh, world. Flow state. Yeah. Pardon? Yeah. That flow state. Yeah. It's, where, uh, when, when things just disappear behind you, you have no sense of time and place because you're so invested in the present moment. Yes. And, yeah. and that's, that's what keeps you being. Because it's not that you start thinking, well, I know what to do. Because every painting's different, and every painting has problems that keep you up at night. Um, but uh, it's like when, it, when you finish it, it's like the best feeling. And you don't even have to, it's nice when people like it or even, uh, it's even nicer sometimes when your uh, friends or other artists, you know, enjoy the piece too. But it is such a self, uh, it just helps my inner self be happy. Yeah, know, there's a satisfaction with overcoming those concerns and those problems. But but you're also talking about something that I, I find really interesting, Al. I read something today. Um, I, I, somebody had posted a quote or something that said, it's more about action rather than thinking. And that, you know, so much of our life, we tend to think about it and we don't necessarily always take action. And what you're talking about is once you pick up the paintbrush or once you pick up the pencil, then you get into that flow state. And by taking that action or going and running down the road in uh, Rome to find the place, the, you get into that creative space. And I think far too often in life, people don't take action. They think about it. They worry about it. But as soon as you pick up the paintbrush of your life, things start to flow a lot better. I love that analogy that you're, you're uh, pulling out here. You know, when I... When we have a, uh, an issue to deal with at our house or something, there are seven children. And they're all older now, but you know what it's like having seven children. And, and so there's always something going on. And Cynthia will say to me, uh, please go down and paint and you'll figure this out. Mm. And it's really true. When I'm painting and uh, not sitting around worrying or trying to get through a situation that I solve lots of things when I'm It's like I know what to do when I'm through. You know what's beautiful? What you just said is your wife recognizes that. It's, mm. it's almost if she recognizes like when you're trying to solve something or you know frustrated or anxiety or whatever's going on that needs to solve a problem, she can look at you and say, go paint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's something about when we get in our own creative space. For some, it might be music. For others, it might be painting. Whatever their creative space is, 
then life becomes easier to solve because we're in that creative space. And it's almost like something happens in the back of the mind or deep in the soul that says, okay, now that you're in the creative space, I'm going to solve the problem for you. But to have a mate who also recognizes that, that can yeah, chase beautiful. you off to go do that. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. You know, another thing that, uh, and I've talked about this to so many of my artist friends, who you marry in, as an artist is, will depend on your success. And because there's such a level of trust that they have to have, you know, I mean, who in their right mind would get out of a, uh, a car in Rome in the middle of nowhere and take off running <laughs> and be open, right? And yeah. because Cynthia was, she was like, okay, he'll figure it out. He's painting. <laughs> So yeah, that's, that's it. That's true. You you have to have somebody that's going to, uh, that will understand the intricacies of what it takes to create beautiful artwork. Right. Yeah. And they start this to is, know your soul. They know your soul. Yeah. Yes. On a very deep level. Yeah. So I'll talk about the unpredictability of watercolor. I, I've, I've always been a big fan of watercolor. That's primarily been my medium for the past 20 years. Um, I don't paint as very often anymore, but I love it partially because of the unpredictable nature of it. I think that's, you know, life is unpredictable. And I think that's part of what makes life beautiful. Talk a little bit about the unpredictability of watercolor and how you manage that. Well, um, it's, uh, you know, watercolor really is a lot like life. It really is. I, I go um, and uh, talk about this quite often. Uh, in fact, I go out to the prison and do this, mm. but I do a little watercolor and I go on, um, you know, and I, sometimes I do church groups or schools and that. And that uh, it's just, it really talks about life a lot. So I do this little watercolor. It's, you know, it's about an eight by 10 watercolor and I can do it. I do the same thing each time because of the unpredictability of things. And so I could, I can talk and do this painting at the same time. And so I get so familiar with it that I, uh, even if I make mistakes or something really bad happens, I can just move past it pretty easy. But then I finish the painting in about 25 minutes and I hold up to everybody. And there, everybody's like amazed, you know, because it looks really nice for a 25 minute painting. And I always say to people, wouldn't you like to be able to paint like that? And everybody says, yeah, you know. But then I pull one of my uh, paintings, my normal paintings that I spend hundreds of hours on. Mm. And I show them what that looks like. And they suddenly look at those two paintings and they can see that the one looks really like a quick sketch and, and the other one looks like a really finely refined piece of artwork. And so, and I tell them that people are a lot like that. And, you know, that the more that we put into ourselves, we don't put thought and time or talking to somebody else at the same time. We never focus on things we can still come out with something pretty nice. But when 
you divert all your energies and you practice on other pieces of paper before you touch on the paper. And when you do uh, 10 or 15 drawings until you get it right and, um, and you pose the person in your painting five or six different ways before you come on to the way that you really want it to be. And then all those factors come together, you come mm. out much different. And so, and watercolors are like people because we're like that. We look around and we compare ourselves to people and we don't even know. We compare them on their outside and what they do and they could, there might not be much to them, right? Mm. But, you know, with all these other things going into it, I think watercolors made me a better person because I have to be so patient with things and I have to really, you know, practice on other pieces of paper. Uh, it's not a matter of just suddenly painting the sky. It's coming up with the colors that are correct on other the pieces of paper and see now an oil painter can put it right on there and it's fine, right? And if they don't like it, then they just paint over. Where watercolor just never gives you that opportunity. And we're like that with myself too. You know, I, hmm. I have to deal with my, with my own life that way. The more patient I am with me, the more I think through things carefully. Uh, that's why I say when my watercolors fit my personality, they, they really, watercolors, I think, make me a better person. Yeah, what a great analogy. That, just beautiful. I have a question for both of you guys, because I know both of you paint. I'm, I'm a musician. Um, there's a little bit of story before I get to the question. There's one of my favorite movies is um, called Three Days of the Condor with uh, Robert Redford and Faye mm -hmm. Dunaway. At Love some point show. in the movie, when Faye Dunaway, Robert Redford starts to notice Faye Dunaway's paintings or photography, I'm sorry, she's a photographer, and he notices how barren her pictures are, and she, he notices how there are no people in her pictures. And mm. I looked at, um, Al, I looked at probably about 70 or 80 of your paintings, and with the exception of one painting, there was a figure. There was a, a woman holding... It looked like a some type of carriage. And yeah. I'm just curious as why, because you just said something about people. Why are there no people? It was is that like a conscious decision that landscapes are more pure and natural without people? Or just how both and you, Steve, because I've seen a lot of your paintings, and there a lot of times there are bereft of figures. And I want to know what is that just part of the medium or is that a conscious choice that people screw it up or they don't or what what is the whole motivation behind not having people in these paintings? Yes, that's a great question. Because my schooling was the figure and oil painting and mm. not much landscape. And uh, although I love to be outside. I need to be outside. That's something that's very important to me. When I was up to the U painting, you know, the figure classes, there was windows on the north side and I'd always be looking out the 
outside the window to see what the what was going on out there. But the lack of figures in my paintings is on purpose. Um, I want when you put the figure in a painting, it is about that figure. Ah. That that's the okay. emotional when you know if you looked at that uh, painting of that handcart girl, you either I don't know uh, how you responded to it. It's like did did you wonder how old she was or what you know if I painted her properly, you know, if it made sense and all those sort of things. Um, I want people to be, I want people to walk. I want to be someone's eyes. Mm. That's the way to say it. I want to, you to be the viewer with me going into my painting. And whenever I selectively use the paint, uh, figure in a painting, it's because I want you to, to be that person in the painting mm. in their eyes, rather than you as a viewer becoming coming into the painting. Yeah, I've I've read uh, often, and I it's interesting you say that, Al, because I read years and years ago that as soon as you put a person into a painting, people are always the focal point. And so, like with your paintings, um, I, I, it, it's interesting you say walk into because I feel like I'm walking into that painting, whatever it is. And I think when there are people there, you identify more with the person that's in there rather than with the scene. And you might get lost by the person and the thoughts about the person rather than the scene. Um, so yeah, I, I, I can see why you're, why you do that. I'm, I'm very much the same way. I love if someone's looking at a painting, I want them to be lost in the scene and I want them to be right there. Um, I love people. I love talking to people. I love getting to know people. I also think the human body is a very beautiful thing. And, you know, my artwork relative to the human uh, body is more in exercise and sculpting the body that way. And I love gorgeous scenes of nature but i want people to come into that scene so i i can definitely relate to what you're talking about um al how do you pick the paintings that you're going to do i know we talked earlier that it starts with a feeling but you also have a theme um you know relative to some of the historical paintings that you've done um, walk us through how you're choosing some of these um, historical paintings uh, or, or, you know, what is it? A, is it still the feeling or did you get an idea and say, hey, I want to go way back and paint the Salt Lake Temple when it was just being built because I read this book? Like, where did those ideas come from? Yeah, it, even the historical pieces start with a feeling. And... Uh, I, you know, the historical paintings are a, a real challenge because there's a real limited amount of information. Mm. And, uh, and at any given time, I mean, it's better now than ever before because like you can Google things and find all sorts of information. Yeah. Or even 15 years ago, all my information came from interviewing people, historians, mm. 
diaries or, you know, you know, and that's a real narrow field. Or I would go downtown to, I would go to the U Library or the Utah State Historical Library and I'd go through old photographs and just go through them. But the historical paintings always started on location. Like, uh, I would just, for some reason, have a feeling I should just go downtown, right? And, and somebody might just say to me, well, what are you going to do? And I'd say, I don't know. I just, just feel like I should go downtown. So I go downtown and I start walking down the sidewalk and and then in my mind, uh, say like this, uh, probably, I wish I had the drawing to show you. Uh, I had my sketchbook with me and I was walking down the sidewalk and I suddenly uh, realized that you could have looked down the sidewalk and seen the Salt Lake Temple all by itself at one time period. And so I did a quick little drawing of what I imagined it might look like. And then I go in, and at that time, things are different now, but at that time I went and researched the idea to see if, uh, if it really was possible. And I found photographs where the, you could sort of see the temple from a certain location. So then the painting evolves. But then mm -hmm. an interesting thing happens, you finish the painting, and somebody will call you and say, this is not right. That's not correct. And I've got to <laughs> And so you learn, right? It's like you learn from doing something not quite right. And you wish you would have found those people before. But <laughs> it, it gives you another idea for another painting. So you, you think, and for in my case, it's I... Uh, on that particular painting, somebody mentioned something about the Brigham Young uh, monument wasn't there. And at that time period, it was, for, you know, 10 feet further the other direction. So then the next time I do something like that, I know where to put the monument. Interesting. And so it leads, a, one painting always leads to another. Okay. What's wrong with the painting? That uh, that does that. Can I give you one more example? We got time. For please, one more yeah, you bet. Yeah, please do. I I took my family uh, and we went to Hawaii. Uh, I had um, I had heard that there was a lot of history of the LDS Church on the Hawaiian Islands, and so I wanted to go try to find out about it. And I really didn't know. Uh, too much and so it was a real gamble to go and we went we spent the whole summer there but I have some uh, friends that are native Hawaiians and they lined me up with someone who knew where there were all um, in the 1860s and 1870s there were more um, chapels in Hawaii than there were in Utah LDS chapels wow so I would go with this uh, uh, George Kaliua uh, ride in the back of his old Datsun pickup truck, and he would drive me to these places out in the jungle sometimes. 
And I would take my sketchbook and we would go interview uh, elderly people that might remember these chapels as little, little children. And uh, the chapels are all gone now. So I would sit down with my sketchbook and I knew sort of what they looked like. Um, I knew that they were just two or three colors because they sent red and green and white over. And so it was one of those three colors. And they had a similar shape to them. Um, but I would start drawing it out. And at first, the person I was talking, you know, they were usually in their late 80s and 90s. They, they would say, oh, I don't remember. I don't remember. And I would start drawing out a chapel. And then they would go, then they'd suddenly go, no, no, no. It was much higher off the ground. <laughs> so as I so they, would it, they would start to remember. Okay. They, their memory would click in. And they would tell me, no, it was about six feet off the ground. And then they'd say, oh, no, no. There, there was a rock underneath that, that area right there. That's where we had primary because it was cooler. And so I'd draw the rock in. And then they'd remember the flowers. And and you know, if I drew it on the wrong place, they'd correct me. And they'd say, no, that the, the um, papaya tree was on the other side. And it was really fascinating to see uh, what they could remember once I had done it wrong. See, so I kind of apply that same thing with uh, my historical paintings. I learned from each one. That's really interesting. So this is, you, you're not using any reference photos for something like this. You're just sketching it out and then going off of the feedback that they're giving you as you're drawing these, these pictures. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a life lesson there, um, especially a, with changing things. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just saying that was a, such a great experience. It was so fun. To be yeah, I can imagine. Mosquitoes flying all over you and just these lovely people. That were... Almost like you're, a, you're the sketch artist uh, at the police station. They said, oh, the eyes are a little bit closer together, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah. But there, there's, there's got to be a life lesson in there where you're, you learn from the mistakes. And I think um, that's a big part of what art and life is, is that you're learning from mistakes and you're making those improvements based off of, off of the mistakes or, or what you thought was wrong in the painting. Yeah, well, I, um, Al, so we've, we've got a few rapid fire questions I'd like to get through with you. Um, the rapid fire uh, portion of the podcast, we just kind of, uh, I'll, I'll ask a question and I'm looking for one or two, maybe word answers or maybe a phrase, what, whatever comes to your mind, whatever the creative spark is. How does that sound? Okay. All wait, right. But wait, so, before we do this, we, we did you this always last gotta interrupt. particular we did this with the artist last week. Al, you, you don't have to answer these two questions. You can have fun with them. But a painter, a historical painter that you absolutely revere and a historical painter who you think might be slightly overrated. <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, man. Let's start with <laughs> revere first. You know, I... You know, I, I suppose that uh, one of my favorite historical painters was Winslow Homer. 
Oh, okay. He would do, you know, his historic pieces. Right. uh, Not too much earlier than his own life, but uh, I always, I would love, I I still, like, I, I can go to, if I go to DC, I just go in and I just find his paintings. I'll spend all day just looking at his. Wow. Mudzo Homer. That's great. And, is yeah. there a painter that you don't or that you think is overrated? Well, slightly overrated. Okay, there you go. Slightly. <laughs> I just, I don't really think that way. Um, okay. I, I have, um, you know, when, when I was little, my dad traveled to foreign countries. And he always brought me back materials from those foreign countries that I knew I had no idea what they were. They were written in Japanese or Spanish or something. And I was always experimenting with things and doing like trying different things. And I, that really helped me like when I was in college, different professors, even professors that I thought were crazy. um, I was still able to paint and learn from what they had to give. So I don't really, I might not care for someone's opinions, but I I never go beyond not investigating more of them, you know? Fair enough. I I totally understand. I'm a jazz, I'm a jazz piano player. And when somebody had posed that question to me, I could give you all the people I revere, But I really don't have anybody who I could say I think is a little overrated because they all seem to have a particular type of skill and a particular style of playing that I can still learn from. So I totally respect you not having an answer for the somebody who is who you might think or is not overrated. I totally understand that feeling, but I had to ask the question. <laughs> okay. Great question. And now to Steve's rapid fire questions. All right. So here we go with the rapid fire. So Al, let's talk disruption. Uh, how do you disrupt in order to uh, disrupt your life or your artwork in order to spark new growth? Well, just doing something that I'm uncomfortable with. Uh, okay, great. I'm afraid of, you know, like maybe I just finished a painting of a figure, uh, and I hadn't really done a painting, a figure painting in several years. And at first it kind of scared me. And uh, so, and, but yeah, that was disruptive. That turned me upside down. That's great. I love it. Talk about how you've evolved over the years. What's, the, what's a quick answer to how you've evolved? Um, I probably spend too much time on a painting and I'm spending trying now to spend uh, how to not overpaint things, how to not mm. get technical about things. To okay. just keep it simple. No, knowing when to say when. Uh, so as you've evolved, what is something that you used to believe that you no longer do? Mm. 
Yeah, Steve asks some doozy of a question sometimes, Al. <laughs> don't feel bad. Sometimes I don't even answer his questions. <laughs> you know, um, I work probably harder than anything in my life at not looking back. Mm. That's probably, I think that's probably the main focus of my life is mm. not looking back. So I, I don't, can I answer that, that question that way? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. I think it's a beautiful answer because far too often we live in the past rather than continuing to look forward. So I think it's a great answer. My last question for you, Al, is uh, are there habits, routines, or rituals that you use to continually progress? Uh, yes. I, I really need and love my studio in my home. And uh, I once thought that I would wanted to have a studio, a big, you know, commercial studio with high ceiling and lights and all that. And I did that for a couple of years and I was miserable. And <laughs> maybe because I couldn't go fix lunch every five minutes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I really like being home and having home around me. So my studio is in the basement of my home. It's quite it's a large and I've got lots, lots of good light and everything for me. Um, and I like being alone and working alone and I need my music, mostly classical music. And um, although I do pull out my rock and have my rock every once in a while. And, but uh, so I need the solitude of my studio I need uh, music um, and uh, I need my home. It's kind of my safety valve, I suppose. That's great. And who would have thought Al Rounds painting the picture, painting of the Salt Lake Temple, listening to Metallica. What a, what a great <laughs> picture. <laughs> Somebody suggested I need to get more of a Vivaldi or something to get going, you know. But, uh, <laughs> That's great. Well, and on that note, folks, it is time for us to wrap up another episode of the Evolve podcast. We want to thank our guest, Al Rounds, for joining us today and my co-host, yeah. W. Miles Riley. Al, what a yeah. pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, you. thank you, Al. Nice to yeah, meet well, you. Yeah, you, you too. Uh, well, we've, we've had a great conversation today. and We hope that you, our listeners, took something with you that are going to help you on your personal evolution. Uh, so, Al, what is the best way for people to follow all the great work that you're doing? Um, is it to go to your website? Or how do they How do they best follow Al Rounds? Yes, uh, we, Al at, at alrounds.com. It's my website. And uh, you can follow me on Facebook, on just Al Rounds uh, Studios. It's probably if you just type in Al Rounds, you'll find me. And, uh, and on Instagram as well. But, we have a nice web page that you can get to and see it. Great. Well, that's great. And uh, we hope that you follow Al and, and continue to see all of the amazing paintings that he is putting out there. Uh, so thanks for sharing that with us, Al. And hey, folks, don't wait. Uh, go smash the stars or the ratings or whatever it is on the app that you're listening to us on. Your ratings help us to book even more amazing guests like Al on the podcast. Miles, what's new at Evolve? 
Well, folks, um, we appreciate it if you get on over to the shop. We have got so much gear at the shop now. We've got all different styles of Evolve shirts, sweatshirts. Um, we've got coffee mugs. We've got water bottles. We've got hats. Go on over, take a look at the shop. Pick out something that is close to your soul. Wear it with pride and Evolve. Yeah, that's great. And as you know, uh, anything that you purchase at EvolveCast.com, Helps us to continue on with the Evolve podcast. But uh, remember, guys, it takes time and consistency to evolve. But first, you have to disrupt in order to evolve your mind, evolve your body, evolve your soul, and evolve your tribe. You are fantastic. But now it's time for you to get out there and evolve. And evolve.